Well, good morning. Can you hear me well? Okay, thank you. Uh, now that you're all warmed up, I, I had planned on what I thought was only appropriate for me today to extend my thank you, first off, to Mr. Del Murphy and the Providence of God Outreach Network and Mr. Ian Houghton for all the hard work that they have put in in the past 365 days for us to be able to make it here. So let's give us a round of applause for them. Uh, I would like also to mention uh, many of the people here that are in the support capacities, Mr. Rick and Brian Gaywith, and uh, obviously those are being from Tulsa, being from the same home church as them, they're a familiar cast to me. I also want to extend appreciation to uh, all those of you who have helped <clears throat> to make this feast possible, not just those who get up and speak, not just those who songly, but all the people who are behind the scenes working very hard uh, to make sure that all these things have come together like they are. And one of the reasons I wanted to start off like this, obviously, is because, first of all, I think it was only appropriate to extend my appreciation, and I'm sure that everyone here is very appreciative to all the things that those people have done for us, but it is actually at the heart of the message I am going to give to you today. If you notice here on the screen, the title of my message is, What is Your Ministry? What is your ministry? And let's ask the question, what is it we think of usually, typically? In this world, when we hear about that word ministry, when we hear the word ministry, what is it we think of? What comes to our mind typically in this world, what we think of is ministers, those who preach, those who are in the leadership capacity of the church, the pastoralship. That's what usually typically comes to our mind when we hear that term ministry or minister. But the Bible doesn't always just use that word in that way. You know, it's true that when we read in the New Testament, we read throughout the scriptures that many of the times when we hear that word, the ministry, ministers, it is true that, we good? Okay, sorry. <laughs> I keep hearing something going on. I didn't know if I, if I move around too much or what. But we think of those people who are in the ministry, and that's the way the New Testament and a lot of different places kind of presents that word. Those who are in the pastoralship, who are part of the preaching ministry or the leadership ministry. That's not always the only way that the Bible uses the word ministry. In fact, in Matthew, the 25th chapter, verse 44, it's used in a completely different way. In this way, it's used in a way that encompasses all Christians. Now, it's true. Not every Christian is a part of the ministry. That is the leadership ministry. That goes without saying. But that doesn't mean that we don't all have a ministry. We may not all be a part of the leadership and preaching and teaching ministry. But it does not mean that we don't have any ministry. And we have to ask the question, what is this word ministry? Just exactly what does this word mean? The word means to be an attendant, to wait upon a host or a friend. And in some cases in the New Testament, as we see this word brought out in a more general sense, such as Matthew, the 25th chapter, verse 44, if you look in that passage, it is used in a way of service. That's what that word means. 
service. And it is interesting that that is what ministers are. They are servants. They're servants to the body of Christ, servants to God. But does that neglect those believers who are not a part of the leadership ministry? Does that neglect or does that take away from you, yourself, all of us from being a servant? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, verse 7 through 11. And I want us to just think about what it means to be in service, what it means to minister, what it means to be and act in a way that is the way Christians are supposed to act. Verse 4, verse 7 of 1 Peter 4 says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, and each one, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So what I would like for us to do here is I'd like just to kind of pick a few things and think about some of the ideas that Peter is bringing to us. The first one is love. Service is about love. When we look at what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, how Christ came to serve, as we will look at here in a few minutes, it was out of what? What was the motivation? It was out of love for God and love for us. Peter here uses the word fervent in company with love. What does that mean, fervent? It, it brings out so many images. The word fervent means to be stretched, strained. Is that not, in many ways, as we live in this world with all the different people that we interact with, as Del Murphy mentioned, I had started a new job teaching. And the job that I started was as a high school teacher. So I'm dealing with 11th and 12th graders at the ages of 16 through 18. I am not a parent yet. So I do not have the ability to be able to tell you that I have a lot of experience with this age range. But in my short stint, I'm sure many of you out there who know what it's like to be a parent, who know how to, what, what it's like to deal with that age group, that it is never more truer to have fervent love when you love those kids at that age group. <laughs> it's a very difficult age group. Uh, and I might add that I'm not a parent, but my wife is because she's married to me. So. Uh, <laughs> So I don't have any experience, but she does. Uh, but the way this word is used brings out the idea of us stretching our love for man. This kind of love involves a love that can come by very difficult circumstances. You know, living in this world, loving can be hard sometimes. People can be very difficult to love. But this love is about putting the good of others above our desires above ourselves, despite our own desires, despite the way they treat us, despite how ungracious they can be. People can be very ungracious to our love. 
people can be very ungracious to the things that we do for them. Despite how hostile people can be towards us. It's about loving without expecting notoriety, acknowledgement, or a look at what I did attitude. Isn't this what Paul told, told us in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter? That we've heard so many times, the, the love chapter, as it's commonly called. A love that suffers long, that doesn't parade itself. A love that doesn't seek its own. And here, I think, is one of the most key parts of this chapter. is a love that doesn't have to be provoked for you to manifest it. You, a love that doesn't have to be encouraged for it to come out. That's easy, right? When people are good to us, it's easy to love them. Is it not? Isn't this kind of at the crux of what Jesus said, that love your enemies? What reward do you have if you only love those who love you? Let's turn to Philippians, the second chapter, and let's look at an example of the greatest love that was ever manifested. Philippians, the second chapter, and we're going to read the very first few verses here. Verses 1 through 4, quickly. It says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love and being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, <clears throat> let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And isn't this familiar. Isn't this what Paul is telling us right here? Very familiar to what we just heard Peter say. Looking out for others above ourselves. Now, that is something that can, in our day and age, can become very cliche. And it can come almost watered down. But it's not as easy as it sounds. We hear it all the time. But if we really think about it, putting others above ourselves is very difficult. Because we are living in carnality. We live in a carnal world. We still live in our fleshly bodies. We still have our, you know, grumblings that come out because people annoy us or people, you know, do things that hurt us or wrong us. This business about seeking those and loving them above our own interest is something that is at the crux of Christianity, and it's very, very difficult. But Paul here gives us our example in the following verses. Verse 5 says, But let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God, and did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that, the, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of the Father. Now, most of us, we've read this passage so many times. We've heard messages on them. 
is a passage, is a string of verses that is so absolutely compounded with meaning. Uh, we could sit here and we could talk for weeks about the implications and the theology and the deep meanings and, and things we can learn about God from this scripture. But simply put, it shows us the humility that Jesus had. Jesus Christ epitomizes everything in terms of divine love. And this is the love that we, as disciples of him, have been called to follow after. As Paul tells us, Jesus, he is at the heart and soul of God's glory. And he demonstrated this to us through what he did. As God in the flesh, the Son of God, and the King of the kingdom that we're looking forward to today. That we're, we're here to, to, to look forward to, to ponder, to yearn for. That King laid it all down for us. And the scriptures tell us that it was out of his selfless humility that he was found in appearance as man and humbled himself in obedience to the point of death. But... In this passage, what I think is the most intriguing and interesting and enlightening thing we can see from this is the next few verses of verse 9 through 10, where we see what happened with Jesus because of this love, because of this humility, because of what he did. Verse 9 says, Therefore God also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice Jesus' reward. You know, Jesus wasn't sitting around and doing this looking for man's reward. His attitude and pleasure wasn't focused or dependent on how many men would praise him for this. What he did was not dependent on any acknowledgement of man. His focus was on God and what pleased him. His attention and pleasure came from being obedient and pleasing to God. And because of this, the passage tells us that God exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee shall bow from those in heaven, on earth, and those under the earth. And this is the, the love that Peter and Paul is admonishing us to display. A love that isn't focused on pleasing man, but on pleasing God. A love that is not focused on man's approval, but God's. A love that is not focused on the selfish, superficial glory of self, but a love that is focused on displaying the glory of God. A love that is manifested with its attention on God and not our pride and vainness. Let's turn back to 1 Peter, the fourth chapter. First Peter, the fourth chapter.
First Peter, the fourth chapter, verses 9 through 10. It says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. I think it's safe to say that we just got what the prerequisite for that is. Being hospitable to each other without grumbling. Peter tells us how we can do that through what he said previously. Because without that love that Peter presented to us, there's no way that we can be hospitable and not grumble about it. Verse 10 says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And we've all received a gift. And I might add, just real quick, that this love, that this hospitality that we are to show one another is also implying strangers. You know, and we're going to look at this here in a little while, who are we to show our love to, our hospitality? Is it just people we know, or, or, our brethren, our family, our friends, or is it everyone? I think that we know the answer. It's everyone. It's strangers, and that's, that's a biblical principle. You know, it's a biblical principle that's not, you know, just limited to the New Testament. And we can see this in Exodus, the 22nd chapter, verse 21, and Deuteronomy 14, verse 28 and 29, where Israel was warned about treating badly strangers that might just mosey upon their path or might come into contact with them in light of them being strangers in a foreign land. Deuteronomy 14, verse 28 and 29 shows us that God provided provisions for strangers, for poor, and for widows. And when it comes to showing our love, our hospitality, we are to manifest that to all those who come in contact with us. Strangers, co-workers, those difficult individuals that come across our path every day, whether we have to work with them or so forth. We all have someone. And I think another one that's very, at least in my uh, life, the stranger driving next to you on the highway. I think all of us can identify with this, especially when you're someone like me who comes, you know, from Tulsa, Oklahoma. You get ample opportunity to allow your frustrations to manifest on the highway coming to Branson from Tulsa, Oklahoma. But Jesus, after this, says that we are, or not Jesus, excuse me, Paul says, but as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And all of us have a specific gift that God has given us. It's all throughout the New Testament. If you have God's Holy Spirit, then you have a spiritual gift. I'm not going to go into listing those spiritual gifts. We've probably heard that. We can do that on our own. 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, <coughs> as well as Romans, the 12th chapter. But I do want to ask the question about this gift that we have. What is the purpose of God giving us a gift? What's the purpose of God giving us a gift? And I've just listed a few, but first off, <coughs> very, on a very simple level, the gift is to edify and equip the body for us to contribute and to edify the body of Christ, to edify the brethren, to give order and functionability to the body, to give godly balance to the brethren. But as 
Peter mentions here, I think, one of the special features that sometimes always, not always, but sometimes overlooked. One of the purposes of that gift, as Peter hints to, is to minister or serve and exalt God's glory. As Peter mentions previously, he says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And we need to remember that Peter mentions that we are to be good stewards of this gift. Now, what's a steward? A steward is someone who has been given charge to someone else's possessions or resources or belongings. So it would seem that we need to remember and it's being implied here that this gift that we have given by God, we do not own it. It's not our possession. It's God's gift. And when we use, when we, when we are being good stewards of someone else's possessions, we are doing what the owner of it expects us and wants us the way they want us to use it. Now let's ask us the question, what is it that makes us as Christians distinct in the world? What, why are we any different than anyone else? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? You know, we live in America, in the United States, predominantly a Christian nation. And sometimes, I think it's, it's safe to say, and we would all have to admit it, that Saying you're a Christian isn't that shocking to people. It, this country's saturated with people who claim to be Christians. This world knows what Christianity is about. It's one of the largest religions in the world. So what makes us distinct from the majority of the people who live in the world? And let's put ourselves in the footsteps of the people of the first century. You know, we can look back at the examples that we have in the Bible, the interactions that Jesus had with the religious establishment of his day. We'll look at that here in a minute. And we can look at maybe some of their cultural norms and some of their habits and some of the history. But it, it's interesting as we look at it, and we can look at some of the distinctions of the different people groups. Behind the surface, people were the exact same way we are today. You know, carnality didn't start in the modern, modern era. You know, selfishness, you know, and pride didn't start, you know, in America, you know, 50 years ago. But this is something that has penetrated man from the very beginning. We just ask ourselves, when we see some of the way people live their life, some of the interactions, some of the religious establishment, uh, so to speak, of Jesus' day in the synagogue and, and with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, many people in Jesus' day had a selfishness to them, had a false religiosity to themselves, had a vainness to them. And we're going to look at that in Matthew, the 23rd chapter. Matthew 23 and verse 1. We'll look at just one interaction Jesus had and something he had to say about those who were religious. 
Matthew 23, verse 1 says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move, move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at the feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone earth your father, for one is your father. He who is in heaven, and do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Notice the characteristics, what characterize, you know, what Jesus, the religious leaders that Jesus was talking about. What, what's some of the characteristics that, that characterize them? Pride, prestige, the praise of man, power. And these characteristics, the way they acted, the way they lived out their lives, their false vanity, their false humility that they would display, caused Jesus later in this chapter to call them hypocrites that shut up the kingdom of God. Hypocrites that devour widows' houses. Hypocrites that value temp the, t the gold of the temple higher than the temple itself. Hypocrites that neglect the weightier matters of the law. Hypocrites who wash the outside of the cup, but leave the inside full of extortion and self-indulgence. Hypocritical, self-righteous, wash-wash tombs. But let's ask the question in contrast to this, what is it that characterized Jesus' ministry? As he said in verses 10 and 11, And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And he in another place said to himself that he came to serve. Jesus came to serve. And service is what characterized his ministry. And not only... And it is only the mark of service that shows the distinction between true Christian love. As Jesus said in John, the 13th chapter, verses 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that, love, that you love one another as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You know, this was one of the chief distinctions of Jesus Christ. You know, the Christ of all mankind, who served all of us, not just those who lived here when he was walking this earth, and exemplified his love through his selfless service to sinful man. And through that, manifested God's glory through himself. Let's turn now and let's ask the question, who do we extend this love to? We looked at that. We asked that question a little other, earlier. And we know the question, but let's read the passage. Turn with me to Matthew 5, verse 43. Matthew 5, verse 43 says, You have heard that it was said, 
you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus Christ and God our Father has prescribed a very, very, very perfect life that we are to follow. We are to settle for just good. We are to settle for greatness. Because we are looking towards Jesus Christ as the one who we are following. And we have been called to perfection. But what's interesting here is that, as we know, this passage falls in the Sermon of the Mount. And it seems apparent that one of Jesus' purpose in this section, because he says these words continually and over and over, is to clear up misconceptions and correct incorrect old ways of thinking. And this is seen by the opening phrase in the passage we just read where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you. You know, there was a lot of misconceptions that Jesus had to deal with, a lot of ways of thinking that Jesus had to clear up. You know, and, and he would say this because he knew that people thought this way. You know, when we look at the passage in Matthew, the 17th chapter, or verse 5, 17, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law of the prophets. Why did Jesus say that? Why didn't he just say, I haven't come to destroy the law of the prophets? Because Jesus knew the minds of men. He knew the things that they were going to assume because he knew the way they thought. He knows how we think. He knows the way those people thought in his day. And throughout this sermon, Jesus repeatedly says these words. You have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you. Jesus didn't come to just fall in line with the world. Fall in line with the established order of his day. Jesus was radical in his teachings. So radical that they killed him. Let's look at another illustration of Jesus' service real quick. You know, as a great example of Jesus' service can be found in what encompassed his Messiahship, what he came and was called to come to do. You know, what was we've heard this and we've discussed this probably in our personal studies and you've considered this you know what was Jesus's purpose in his first coming versus his purpose in his second coming but his first coming we know his purpose his purpose was to come to preach the gospel and the kingdom of God and to die for our sins and in so doing to manifest that glory of God to be our example in doing that but let's think about it. What is implied in this? You know, we understand that Jesus came to free us from the bondage of sin through what he did. But, I mean, we hear those words, bondage. 
you know, bringing us out of slavery. All of this conveys the meaning of, of freedom, that we are in bondage, and now through what Christ has done for us, that we have been freed from this world, from sin, from the ways of thinking, from those old misconceptions that Jesus cleared up. And through his sacrifice, this way of freedom has been provided for us. Through his preaching and gospel, Jesus proclaimed freedom from the bondage of this world. Let's look at Luke, the fourth chapter, verses 18 and 19, where Jesus is in the synagogue of, uh, at Nazareth, and he's getting up, walks up there, and the scroll is open to Isaiah. And Jesus reads out of Isaiah and says in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And this is what Jesus did. All throughout his life we see the people.